Hi everyone, John here. Yes, you found the Woe Podcast about horses and horsemanship. I want to do something a little different today. I want to take you back in time. Back to the week before our country celebrated the first hundred years of the Declaration of Independence. Put yourself in the boots of a cavalry soldier under Captain Benteen, part of the 7th Cavalry under the command of George Armstrong Custer. For the last six weeks, you've ridden the 400 plus miles from Fort Abraham Lincoln on the Missouri to the Bighorn Valley of Montana to engage the Lakota Sioux Indian Nation. It's June 25, 1876. Captain Benteen's companies were sent south to look for more Sioux while Custer and Major Marcus Reno headed for the main Indian encampment. Custer and Reno would split up their eight companies of cavalrymen, Custer taking 210, Major Reno 140. Both were attacked. Your company, along with two others under Benteen's command, came to the aid of Reno, but were pinned down until dusk on June 26. At dawn, on the 27th of June, the Indians are gone. Your company is sent to look for Custer. Four miles out, you begin to see the carnage. Bodies everywhere. Most bodies are stripped because the Indians find every item valuable. Some are mutilated. Blood and death is everywhere. You keep advancing, moving forward, looking for any sign of life. As you approach a rise, you see more bodies, and it dawns on you, these are all members of your outfit, the 7th Cavalry. There are no dead Indian bodies. They have all been removed. The quiet is deafening, except for the buzzing of flies as the summer morning heats up. You reach the top of a rise, and there you find your golden-haired leader, General Custer, dead. You look around, scanning the horrible scene. Suddenly, you catch a glimpse of something moving down in a ravine. What's that? A horse? It is. It's a short gray dun. That's Comanche, Captain Keo's horse. You head in his direction with your fellow cavalrymen, yelling his name. He whinnies back acknowledgement. He's wounded in many different places, but he's alive. He is alive. All of Custer's men, 210, were killed at the Battle of Little Bighorn. 70 horses were found dead, which means 160 were taken as spoils by the victors. One horse was left behind. This is Comanche, the amazing story of the horse that survived. I would like to welcome my friend and author, Janet Barrett, to the show. Janet wrote the book, They Called Her Reckless, about the hero horse of the Korean War. And now she's here to talk about her latest work, Comanche and His Captain, The War Horse and the Soldier of Fortune. Welcome to the show, Janet. How are you this morning? I am fine. I'm fine. The sun is shining in Connecticut, and that makes everything 
everything A-OK. So thank you so much for having me. You know, I don't know where you find these wonderful horse stories. First you came up with Reckless and the hero of the Korean War. But now you've discovered Comanche and his captain, Captain Keogh. And I alluded to yeah. Captain Keogh in my intro. Who was Captain Keogh and why have we never heard of him? You know, I like to say this is a, this is a backward story because what people knew initially was that Horse had survived the Battle of Little Big Horse, and it was wonderful, and they took him to their hearts, and, you know, the brave Comanche and all of this. And after, after quite a while, I think people started to wonder, well, who was the dude that rode him? You know, I mean, well, there has to be a backstory to that. And then, and then with a lot of digging, Captain Keogh, Miles Keogh from Ireland, emerged. So I kind of went back and put the whole story together because I think it really does. It intertwines and weaves together. And uh, for me, it was a childhood story. I remember my father telling me about a horse that survived a battle. Just that simple. You know, I bet I was about eight years old and maybe we had gone to a, a Western movie and some of the horses had been shot and I must have gotten upset and he would have found the opportunity to say, well, you know, there was this other story. And that was it for me for really until, until I started to look around. I mean, having written about Reckless, I wanted to do another horse, another military story. And suddenly I started to kind of, my, my mind went back and I thought, Comanche, Comanche, you know, I wonder what that is all about. And, and then this, this whole thing started to present itself. And you actually started with Comanche and then worked back through the captain mm -hmm. who rode him and mm -hmm. acquired him. Miles Keogh, he came from Ireland. Was this a common occurrence in the United States at the time to, to get their military soldiers from overseas? Well, yes and no. I mean, he did very definitely come from Ireland and he's what we call a soldier of fortune. He was Irish Catholic. And Ireland in those days, in mid-19th century, and then and for quite a few years after that, was still a colony of England. England was pro-Anglican. They were defenders of the Church of, of England. And anti-Catholic, not always very obvious. So to be Irish Catholic was not really a good position in those days in Ireland. And he determined as a young man that he wanted to be a soldier. But it was not to not to fight for England. I mean, that was just not part of what he would of his of his life's plan. And he went to to first to Italy to fight for the Pope, and that was a very very brief thing. And then he came over here, entered the Civil War as a captain. He was a smart young man. He sort of he, I think of him as very very self possessed, very directed, even from a young age. And he entered the Civil War as a captain. Always as a staff officer, every every step along the way, he served with Meade and McClellan, John Buford, George Stoneman. I mean, you know, top names. The soldiers of that time, they did they just learn their trade pretty much on the battlefield? You bet. Some of them, I mean, you know, Keogh was different in that he'd had experience in Italy. But yes, I mean, they were recruited and some were military, but so many more came Oh my goodness! Out of the shops and off the fields, the farm, you know, farmers and so forth, and and they literally in the evenings were reading manuals mm. about war, about and using weapons. Yeah, it was really train as you go, and so to have someone like Kehoe on board as an officer with experience was very very valuable. You had asked though about how many soldiers came from other lands. Right. Um, this is this has been very much a pattern in this country. 
hundreds of thousands of immigrants have fought for us from the revolution on. And I don't know how much that's known, but uh, Miles Keough stands on the shoulders of many, many soldiers fought in the revolution, in the Civil War, and, and even up to today. I mean, they come and, and fight for us, and many of them stay, as did Keough. So he was in the cavalry, or the mounted kind of uh, battalions that, if he was in Italy, maybe, they, I, don't, I don't know if they use cavalry as a term over there or not, but mm, was that no. kind of the, uh, the, the choice duty of a, of a soldier? Fair question. I mean, he, he grew up around horses. You know, he came from southeast Ireland, County Carlow, uh, rural. I mean, his family had a farm. You know, horses were, were the, the means. I mean, you walked, you rode, or you were carried along in a buggy. I mean, you, there, there were no other, there were no other ways. <laughs> right, right. That makes sense. <laughs> we forget, you know, this is before, before engines. And I believe, given, given the compliments that came his way as a very young man in America, in the U.S., that he just grew up. He was one of these kids that was galloping his pony from the time he could get a leg up. Right. And just, you know, that was that was part of his life. As far as the cavalry, for him, yes, horses were certainly a part. And when he, in Italy, he rode, but there was also fighting on foot, as there was in the Civil War. I mean, you know, much of the war was fought by the infantry on foot. But he was a horseman. When he hooked up with John Buford, who was said to be the best cavalryman on either side in the Civil War, then I think his his abilities really shone. And then later on, after the Civil War, he decided he liked us and he was going to stay in America. Um, he told his brother, he said, this was a good place for a young man to make his way, to make something of his life. And he joined the cavalry. Did they make much money? I mean, the cavalry didn't, I mean, it wasn't a high No, the thing, cavalry though. didn't. <laughs> no. But for a lot of people, I mean, he made a little bit more as a captain. And I don't know this for sure, but I know that his family in Ireland, they were not high-born, but they were comfortable. Mm -hmm. They had survived the, the Great Famine economically in, in okay shape because their crop was barley, and barley is always needed by the breweries. Right. In general, um, the pay in the cavalry was, was, was poor, but pay everywhere was poor. And for a lot of, a lot of young men, the cavalry was a job. Right. You know, they, a lot of them didn't know how to ride. And still join the cavalry, and and you know Keo was Keo was teaching riding and chasing Indians. I mean, <laughs> this was another baptism by fire, you know, in the same way that the Civil War we just talked before about, you know, it was studying manuals at night and and uh, and going to battle in the day. Not always. I mean, I don't want to overplay that. So it might have been just a lifestyle for him to to want to be around horses, to be in the military, and then to be out in the countryside because he got sent to some uh, pretty far outreaching uh, outposts and forts out in uh, the oh, Dakotas boy, yeah. and, and the West. Yeah, well, his first assignment with the cavalry, he joined the 7th Cavalry, which in time became famous. I mean, that's that's the a numbered cavalry that a lot of people might know because it the commander was was General George Armstrong Custer and Custer had made a name in the Civil War and he continued to have have a name up until the very end. Keogh's first assignment was Fort Wallace. Fort Wallace was almost to the edge of Kansas, the far west, the almost to the western western boundary. It was called the Fightingest Fort 
in the West. Wow. The, the assignment, the overall assignment of the cavalry was to secure the frontier, to help to settle the frontier, to protect the settlers and the railroad workers and the boundary, the boundary layers and everybody from the Indians. And that first assignment put him on the edge. I mean, they were fighting Indians the whole time. Right. And it was it was at a time in our history from after the Civil War, 1865 to mm -hmm. 1876, was when there was a big cattle drive from Texas all the way up to Colorado, Kansas, all the way up to Montana. So they were running cattle to get good grass and to, to raise beef for the big mm -hmm. cities back east. So I imagine there was a, a lot of expansion at that time and quite a need for protection. Definitely. And after the Civil War, a lot of people moved west, the homesteaders, uh, a lot of blacks moved west. I mean, they were emancipated now. For a lot of people, just to pack up and move out and start a new life was the way to go. And they all needed protection because the Indians were fighting for their lives, for their civilization, particularly the Plains Indians. I mean, these were the nomads. These were the ones that they followed the buffalo. The bu buffalo followed the grasses. So they were always on the go, and they did not want to be pushed onto reservations. Right. So there was this... this push-pull, this fight was going on all the time. Scary, exciting times. Exciting to us. To be in the midst of it, I think it took a lot of fortitude. It took a tough guy like Keogh, and then when he hooked up with Comanche, I mean, what a, what a combo that was. That's an interesting story in itself, because Keogh had always had horses that the army had supplied. What about Keogh's horse in the Civil War? This wasn't Comanche, it was another horse. It was. He had a horse by the name of Tom, which I suspect was the first horse given him, and he he loved this horse. I mean, I think Keo really had that that uh, ability to to love and nurture any horse that was in his in his life. Uh, and I will say, as an aside, you know, horses in those times were for a lot of people they were expendable. I mean, they were simply the means. You know, those four legs that got them from one place to another. And when they died, well, where's the next one? You know, Keo loved Tom. Tom did, did well by him, and, and he wrote his sister one time that he literally saved his life by sensing that the enemy was approaching before Keo could see them and just jumped a fence and got them out of the way. And then in 1864, so that would be two years after two years of riding. And in, in the Civil War, that was a lot. Yes. He was shot out from under him. Wow. And Keo was devastated. He wrote his he wrote his sister that he said, I will never have a horse like that again. And I wanted to say to, to Captain Keo at that moment, you will. It's going to take a while, but you will. Right. And then, of course, that was Comanche four years later. So it took him four years to get another so-called regular horse. No, well, he had horses all the way along. Right. I mean, the horses were there. But it was but it was four years before we heard of one that, let me say, captured his heart. I mean, I know that's a bit hokey, but a horse that that then had a name and that we then knew was another partner for, for Keo. And how did he come across Comanche? Well, what we know is that Comanche, he arrived in St. Louis at, at one of these terrible horse depots, and I say terrible because the conditions were were dreadful for the horses. I, I think to myself, if they survived those depots, they had enough antibodies to keep them going. Because <laughs> well, really the disease and the, I mean, they were terrible. They were terrible. We think he came up from South Texas, 
from the desert. The 7th Cavalry was in need of horses to replace those they had lost over the winter. And again, it was tough sledding. It was tough sledding for everybody in war. I mean, war is, war is no fun for anyone. Right. But it's, it's, it was always tough for the horses. Many of them died from disease and injuries, far more than in battle. This spring of 1868, the younger brother of Custer came down to St. Louis looking for horses to build up the, the reserve again. Because, yes, the, the government had the horses. And we think Comanche was amongst them. And at some point, Keogh, not in St. Louis, but perhaps at Fort Leavenworth, you know, assessed what was there and, you know, decided that's what he liked. I think it was an amazing choice because Keogh, having gone through the Civil War with all of these generals on as a staff officer, he'd made a lot of connections. He had a lot of friends and friends in, shall we say, higher places. I mean, they were all officers. Mm -hmm. He could have had any horse he wanted. He could have had a Kentucky thoroughbred. He could have ridden one of those weak, fast animals like Custer did. Custer always rode thoroughbreds. And he chose the the Mustang. Mm -hmm. And just think how smart that was because the Mustang is so resilient particularly a horse coming out of, out of the Texas desert. Right. They don't necessarily eat every day. You know, vegetation is not that plentiful. Water can, can be scarce. They know how to manage between food and water. And that stood Comanche in such, such good stead on the battlefield. We call him Comanche just because that's the name of the book, but he, he actually earned that name. Yes, yes, he absolutely did. How did that come about? Well, we think that, and I, you know, I use the word think because old stories, as they're retold, you know, they're, you have to kind of, kind of weigh, weigh the stories that come up and figure it for yourself. But there was, was a battle. At some point, Keogh, with his company, was out fighting a band of Comanches. And Comanche, the horse, sustained an arrow to his rump. And someone said that he, he just yelled like a Comanche. Keogh apparently didn't notice because of, you know, the whole din of, of the battle. Uh-huh. And then later that night, back, at, back at, at the fort, here was this arrow. And the farrier at that point had to pull it out. And apparently the horse was very stoic. You know, he just endured that. That's how, you know, the, the stoicism, the toughness. He got an arrow in the rump, and he still was able to uh, finish the battle and get his, That's right. his captain home. That's right. Absolutely so. And he was that tough at Little Bighorn. I mean, you know, not to mention, and again, it's, it goes back to their, just their ability to endure. I mean, you go out on these long, as they did, they went out on these long expeditions, and they carried grain for the horses, but they also expected them to be able to drink from the streams along the way to to graze on local grasses. And sometimes that did not work out. You know, the streams weren't running clear. The grasses weren't so good. Mm-hmm. And that cost other horses a lot. In fact, there were horses that succumbed on expedition because they couldn't handle that, that harsh life. And Comanche... He was okay. So then Captain Keogh and the 7th Cavalry traveled the 400 miles from Fort Abraham Lincoln all the way to Little Bighorn. They fight that battle, and Comanche's the only horse that was left there alive. Why didn't the Indians leave such a brave horse behind? You'll find out right after this. This episode is about events that happened over 150 years ago. I bet the cinch that the 7th Cavalry used back then was not too much different than the one you're using today. 
people just don't think of their cinch that much. Well, except for the folks at Total Saddle Fit. They have created a whole new design with their shoulder relief cinch. They looked at the basic cinch and saw that it was interfering with the horse's range of motion. With its unique design, the shoulder relief cinch solves this problem. And with lots of colors, sizes, and materials to choose from, your horse will look stylish too. With over 10,000 sold, the folks at Total Saddle Fit are so certain you will love their new design, they offer a 30-day, risk-free guarantee. And to make it even easier, shipping is free to anywhere on the planet. So head on over to totalsaddlefit.com and check out their great line of products today. Okay, so we're back with Janet Barrett, and we're talking about Comanche and the Battle of Little Bighorn. Now, there were some 240 horses that Custer had with him at Little Bighorn. 70 of them were found dead, uh, so we know that the Indians took, they had to take wounded horses, they had to take the good horses, but there was, yep. there was probably, you know, 160 or something like that that were taken by the victors, but one mm -hmm. horse was left standing. Why didn't they That's take right. Comanche? Did they not like him? Or I mean, The story that the Indians tell, and you're right, the Indians would take any viable horse, either those that, that just had spooked from, you know, once their riders had fallen off and were just perfectly fine, at least in terms of getting them off the battlefield. And they also took wounded horses that looked like they would mend. The story the Indians tell is that at the last, and this was when the Indians were closing in on, on Last Stand Hill, and it really was just, it was almost like a noose. They were almost like tightening the noose. At the last, Keo was trying to keep his, his skirmish line intact, and he was exhorting his men to, to keep fighting, keep fighting, keep fighting. He stayed mounted. And I think to myself, that horse, who, was, who allowed himself to be broadside in front of those men, between those men and the Indians, Right. You know, returning fire and not not just bolt. Yeah. I mean, so here's Keogh mounted on Comanche, broadside in front of his men, sort of protecting them, keeping them keeping them fighting as long as they could. And then at the end, they say that a bullet went through Comanche's chest, kind of the left, that fleshy part, went through the chest and exited and shattered Keogh's knee. And that toppled Keogh. Wow. And at the last, he, he pulled himself under Comanche. Now, so this horse is willing to stay still, <laughs> right? I yeah. mean, just think of that. Pulls himself under Comanche and fires his last shots at the Indian between, from between the front legs. Oh, my God. Holding on to the reins. One Indian in particular said he would have taken Comanche once Keo died. He said he was, he was viable. He, that would have been, he would have been okay. But he said he couldn't deal with the connection. It was almost like a spiritual connection that in death, Keo stayed holding those reins and the horse stayed still. Wow. And they left him be. They just, they couldn't deal with that. That was more emotional than just taking a horse. Too emotional. Oh my God. So, yes, he survived. Some of your listeners will say, oh, but I've heard that there were some other horses that were alive. There were some horses that were down. When the, when the rescue party arrived two days later, some horses were down, just kind of gasping their last, and they were, they were put down very fast. I mean, they were at, at the very end of their lives. Right. But the only horse standing was Comanche. 
And his saddle was like draped underneath him and he was... They said that the saddle had had, the, the girth was still attached and it had swung under. So now you had that girth pulling on his back and the saddle under his belly. You know, he was a wreck. I mean, in terms of he'd been in the, in the broiling sun for two days. He had, as it was determined much later, seven wounds, seven flesh wounds, but several of them very deep. You know, they had been oozing. The flies were having a, having a fine old time. He hadn't had food or water. But he heard the voices, and he whinnied. And the men were able to, and particularly, I think it was Captain Keogh's best friend, Henry Nolan, recognized him. And they just, you know, so you have to have to picture a scene of horror and the men's reaction being so heartbroken at their, at their dead comrades, their dead colleagues, and yet the joy at this horse surviving. And they recognized him. It was Captain Keogh's horse. They knew him right away. You know, they, they rallied him. They got him water. They got him grasses. And then apparently someone shared a bottle of Hennessy brandy. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that picked him up. <laughs> and he was able to walk with the, with, with the men, with the rescuers. They walked four and a half miles that afternoon back to where some of the other men, uh, Marcus Reno's companies, wow. were. Well, you've written a, a wonderful story about the horse. The book goes into the details after Little Bighorn and the, the treatment that Comanche got. It fascinates me that you were able to piece all this together from details 150 years ago. And, mm-hmm. and of course, we have history from 150 years ago, but we don't have history from 150 years ago out in the middle of nowhere where there weren't a, a lot of witnesses and mm. there were no survivors to come back and say this is what the battle looked like other than the Indian accounts and that's right and and the veracity of those I think varied quite a bit so you had you had an amazing task at, in front of you to try and piece all this stuff together and you just did a wonderful job of weaving the story of the horse the the captain into this this to this history lesson too Mm, thank you. I mean, it was it was fascinating. I'm still fascinated, you know, as I kind of go over it and talk about it. I mean, it, yes, I think it was an amazing story. And then Comanche, the survivor, went on to be, in short order, the most famous horse in America. I mean, just almost deified, you might say. I mean, he was the survivor. He was beloved. The people came to see him at, at, when he returned to Fort Abraham Lincoln. So then there's a whole other story of, of Comanche, the survivor. I mean, yeah, it's a, I think it's a great story. I'm, I'm lucky to have remembered my childhood story and to have delved into it. Uh, listeners want to find the book Comanche and His Captain. Uh, where can we send them, Janet? It's on Amazon. Oh, great. I guess that's the easiest for them. If people want signed copies, they can contact me, and maybe you'll put my, my email on your, on your website. I'm happy to sign books. Comanche and his captain, the war horse, and the soldier of fortune. Thanks for being on the Woe Podcast with us, Janet. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. That'll do it for another episode. Thanks to Janet Barrett for writing the story of Comanche and his captain. It's a fun read. You can find it on Amazon, and I'll have the links at wopodcast.com. Thanks to our sponsor, Total Saddle Fit. Check out their shoulder relief cinch at totalsaddlefit.com. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. 
and every episode is at wopodcast.com. I'd love to hear about your horse. Do you have a story to tell? What was the hardest thing you had to learn about horsemanship? Was it through experience? Share your story with us. Either record yourself telling the story or contact me and we'll set up a time and I'll do all the heavy lifting. I'll record and edit and put it all together. My email is john at wopodcast.com or connect with me on Facebook. And while you're there, share a few photos of you having fun with your horse. I love seeing that. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram too. Thanks again for listening and sharing this podcast. That's how we grow. So until next time, for Renee, this is John Harris saying, go have some fun with your horses. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.